It's two days, two days after her 17th birthday, Laura Welch was out of school, driving down the road without a care in the world, her best friend with her in the seat next to her, wind in her hair, singing along with the radio. But in all of her carefree uh, actions and all of her singing along with the radio and chatting with her friend, she made a tragic error. She failed to see a stop sign, barreled through the intersection, hitting a car that was occupied by one of her good friends, Michael Douglas, who was also 17 and a very popular student in Midland, Texas. He was thrown from the car where he broke his neck, and by the time the paramedics arrived, he was pronounced dead. Laura said it was the worst day of her life. Now some 50 years after the accident, she still deals with the guilt. After having kids of her own, the guilt got worse, realizing that not only does she have to live with the painful consequences of taking someone's life, but after having kids of her own, realizing that she also caused great pain and heartbreak for the family of Michael Douglas, who lost a son. Later in life, she got married to a man that she loved dearly. They had children. But soon things got bad. Her husband started drinking and drinking a lot. Those were some of the worst days of her life as well. Finally, she knew something had to change, and so she issued an ultimatum to her husband. She said, it's me and the kids or it's alcohol. You choose. Thankfully, he made the wise choice. He put the bottle down. He turned to a relationship with God, and their marriage has been special ever since. Today, Laura and her husband, George W. Bush, enjoy a great life together. They've raised their children. They look back on that season in their lives where George was an alcoholic, and they see it as a turning point in their marriage and in their life overall. But she says it all started for her, her appreciation for life and all that goes with it. That all started for her back in 1963 on that fateful day when she carelessly went through an intersection taking another young man's life. I'm sure you've enjoyed some really good days. I'm sure you've had some really good days in your life. You think about really good days, you think about getting that job that you really wanted, or you think about you know, finding out that you're pregnant, or you think about the, the, your graduation from college. Those are really good days. But if you know anything about life, you know that it has a way of balancing itself out. Hopefully you never have to deal with your worst day, but chances are if you live long enough, you're going to. Hopefully you experience more good days than bad, but chances are life is going to balance itself out and you take the good with the bad. I want to ask you this morning, what do you do on the worst day of your life? Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because you've experienced the worst day of your life and you're here to tell about it. You may not have gotten through it completely. You may still suffer the consequences of it. You may still deal with the pain and the heartache, but you're here. 
And some of you are sitting here this morning and you have not dealt with the worst day of your life. At least not on a level that's really worth talking about. Maybe you've had some bad days. But you haven't experienced adversity to the point that you've been sent reeling. And I hope that you never do. It is my prayer that you never have to deal with terrible adversity in your life. But if you do, where will you turn? What will you do on the worst day of your life? Because I believe this with all my heart. If faith can be proven on your worst day, God's going to take care of you. And I also believe this, that your worst day with God will be astronomically better than your best day without Him. I want you to imagine living life as you always have. You feel good. Life is normal. You're going about life as normal. One day you're sitting in your house and you're watching television. Your daughter climbs up in the recliner with you and you lean forward. She starts scratching your back. And she says, what is that? Something odd about your back. What are these bumps? And so you go to your doctor. And your doctor says, oh yeah, that, that's nothing. We can take those off. But I've noticed that you hadn't been to see me in a while. And you say, yeah, why well, come see you? Nothing's ever wrong with me. You only come to the doctor when you're sick, right? And the doctor says, yeah, but you're about to turn 50. I'd like to just do some blood work, just get a baseline here, and we can go from there. How's that? You like your doctor, so you oblige. You say, I'll, I'll go home, I'll fast, I'll come back, I'll do what you tell me to, doc. I trust you. And so you do all that. And after the blood work comes in, you get a phone call. It's your doctor. And he says that your liver enzyme levels are irregular. And he orders a sonogram. And the sonogram shows lesions and greater areas of concern. And so a CT scan is ordered. And the results from the CT scan show more lesions as well as issues with the pancreas area and enlarged spleen and liver damage. The doctor wants you to see an oncologist. You know what oncologists deal with. Cancer is not something that you ever want to approach in life. The dreaded C word comes up, and that's what you're staring in the face. After several tests and opinions, you decide to go and talk to the fine folks at MD Anderson and see what they have to say. And here's what they have to say. The official diagnosis is large B-cell lymphoma with T-cell enrichment and Hodgkin's-based characteristics, stage four. What's that mean? In layman's terms, it means you have 45 days to live. Now you're facing life coming to an abrupt end. What do you do? What's your wife going to do? What's your children going to do? Test results show, a PET scan shows, 99 plus lesions. Plus, because it stops counting at 99. A whole lot more, but it stops counting at 99. What are you going to do? What do you do on the worst day of your life? Here's what this person did. The following comes from the cancer patient's wife. This is a journal entry that she put. James had a moment this afternoon where I looked over at him and tears were streaming down his face. I asked him if he was okay. He shook his head yes and said he was. 
It took him a few minutes to gather himself and tell me why he was crying. He said, I just closed my eyes a few minutes and said a prayer to God. I told God, I'm not going to worry anymore about what's going on in my life. I'm done worrying about work, the deals I'm working on. I'm done worrying about the upcoming lumbar puncture. I'm turning everything over to you. He said he told God, I don't have the energy anymore to fight this cancer and everything else going on around me. He realized that if it finally took cancer for him to have full and complete trust in God, he said he knew God had been waiting on him to finally reach this point in his life. What do you do on the worst day of your life? We'll come back to this gentleman and his plight here in just a moment. I want you to think about everything we've talked about at this point. I want you to think about the question that I posed in relation to the early church, in relation to Stephen and Philip. Our passage this morning comes from Acts chapter 7. In the early days of the church, many Christians witnessed the murder of one of their own. Stephen was a bold and courageous leader, an effective servant. He was a godly man, and, and his efforts were part of this gospel revolution that was occurring. And so you look at Acts chapter 7, starting in verse 51, and it reads, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside the robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. Without a warning, violence erupts against the early church. The unbelievable has become a reality. Stephen is arrested, he is charged, he is executed, and his killing brings on all sorts of persecution. Stephen's funeral only means there's going to be more funerals. And if there were a book written by these early Christians entitled, The Worst Days of Our Lives, the events surrounding Acts chapter 7 would certainly take up a large portion of that book. Stephen's funeral only promised more funerals, and it was now open season on Christians. Many Christians fled from Jerusalem, but they were hunted. The persecution followed them. There was one particular persecutor that we see mentioned in what we just read, a guy by the name of Saul, who later became a promoter of Christianity, but at this point was a persecutor, right? We won't go into his story in detail this morning, but just to give you an idea, Saul made a difficult 125-mile trek to Damascus in order to round up Christians there to destroy them. You think about how much you've got to hate a certain group of people to go to those lengths. 
This is what the church is facing. Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 1, it reads, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. So the joy of new beginnings is now replaced with persecution, imprisonment, and even the threat of death. You know, we, we first read about the early church gathering together and breaking bread together and fellowshipping with one another, but now the honeymoon is over. Now, this is a full-scale attack upon God's people. The stoning of Stephen would definitely be classified as one of the worst days in the early church. But it's what happens in the aftermath of Stephen's murder that I think offers hope to all of us who are at the intersection of adversity and crisis. So I'm going to frame the rest of the lesson like this. In a very practical sense, we're going to frame it like this. What to do on the worst day of your life. Now let me just say, that this is really high-level stuff, okay? This is like graduate-level stuff we're going to talk about, so I don't mean to be over your head. I just want to warn you, this is rocket science kind of stuff, or like my coach used to say, this is rocket surgery. So be ready for this, okay? Here we go. Keep breathing. Keep moving. Keep living. That's it. I know that's complicated. Actually, I know that seems rather basic, and rather elementary. But these three things are vital for us in handling the worst day of our life. Look at the first one. Keep breathing. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. Understand the Greek word for lamentation here just means the passionate expression of grief or sorrow. You want to know what you do on the worst day of your life, you want to know the first thing you do on the worst day of your life? You cry. Yeah, you cry. Because that's what we do. And it's only natural, it's only normal, and it's only necessary. Now, the people around you are going to try to get you to stop crying. Have you noticed that? Anytime you're grieving, well-intentioned people try to get you to stop grieving. And I think it's because they love you and they want what's best for you. I think it's also because they don't know how to handle grieving. I think most of us really are at a loss about what to say or what to do. Don't say anything. Why does a person have to stop crying? It is natural, it is normal, and it is necessary. Lamentation is important to the grieving process. Let people lament what you do on the worst day of your life is you cry, you grieve. The world's going to tell you, hey, life's tough, get a helmet. you got to pick yourself up by the bootstraps and move on. Don't listen to the world. Jesus wept. We were created with feelings of, of, of sadness and sorrow. We, we were created with tear ducts that allow us to cry, to feel the emotion. We live in a culture that exalts toughness as a virtue and strength as a virtue. And it often looks at grieving as weakness. And people will hug you and they will pat you on the back and say, there, there, stop crying. Why? Why should I stop crying? It's natural, it's normal, and it's necessary. 
When Moses died, the Israelites mourned and wept for 30 days. When Joseph's father died, it was not unexpected, yet Joseph fell on his father's face and wept, as Genesis 50 and verse 1 tells us. He then observed 70 days of mourning, plus seven more days after the funeral procession arrived at the borders of Canaan. Paul says, weep with those who weep. We were designed to hurt, to feel panic, to, to scream, to weep bitterly. That's the way we were made. Certainly we can take that to an extreme. Certainly there are, there are steps in the grieving process that you know, maybe, maybe there's a time when we need to, to stop crying and move forward. But at the beginning, let people lament. You shouldn't have to apologize for crying. It's okay. Anyone know what this is? That's a tear bottle. You ever seen one of these? Actually, many millennia ago, back in ancient Rome even, mourners would cry and people would collect the tears, maybe even the mourners themselves, they would collect the tears in these tear bottles and they would bury them with the dead as a sign of respect. I don't know if it's true, but I've read somewhere that uh, some historians say that uh, people were hired to walk around with these tear bottles in, in different cultures. And as people lamented and cried, they would catch their tears. And the more tears they caught, the more that they were paid. It's also been said that during Civil War times, that the wives of the soldiers that were gone off to war would catch their bottles, I mean, catch their tears in these bottles. And when their husbands would come home, they would show them these bottles just to show them how much they had missed them. All this reminds me of what the psalmist writes in Psalm 56 and verse 8. You have taken account of my wanderings, put my tears in your bottle, are they not in your book? Put my tears in whose bottle? Your bottle. What this tells me is that every tear that falls from your eye is taken to account by God. That we don't mourn alone. That we don't cry without our Heavenly Father taking notice. There will come a day when God will wipe away every tear from your eye. But as of now, God notices your weeping. He notices your wailing. We are going to a place where there will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more crying. But until then, keep breathing. And keep moving. Notice verse 8, I mean, excuse me, verse 4 of Acts 8. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Pay attention to that phrase, those that had been scattered. Remember why they had been scattered? Well, because of persecution, right? You've heard me say it over and over again. There's a time for the church to gather and there's a time for the church to scatter. Our scattering, though, is voluntary. Nobody's forcing us from this place. Nobody's forcing us out of our home or out of our land. It's voluntary. But for these folks, it was not. But this phrase, those that had been scattered, represents a beautiful movement of the first church. The early Christians were in grave danger, so they fled. But as they fled, do you know what they did? Therefore, those that had been scattered went about preaching the word. That little sentence there represents an incredible movement, one that could not be halted even in the face of persecution, even in the middle of a mess. The church would, never should have gotten off the ground, never should have been successful, yet was taking the world by storm. 
What if the persecution had never occurred? What if Stephen had never been stoned to death? What if, can we say that God works in the middle of a mess? Can we not see that here in Acts chapter 7 and Acts chapter 8? God working? I'm sure that those who were living all of this were asking God why. I'm sure like us, they couldn't see God working behind the scenes. They didn't understand his providence as we don't many a times, right? But the important thing is that they kept moving. And in the middle of your mess, in the middle of your grief, it's important to remember to keep breathing and to keep moving. I know it's hard, and I know it's difficult, but you got to keep moving. When the worst day of your life hits, you're going to have to make a choice. Abandon your faith or cling to it. That's the choice. There is no middle ground here. You'll either deem your faith in God as worthless or the most important thing to you. And hopefully... You choose the latter and not the former. Some individuals follow up the worst day of their life with great depression, and we can kind of understand that depending on what the mess is. Some people even resort to suicide. Some pull away from church and from community and from a relationship with God. I certainly don't want to make light of any tragedy that you have to endure or any crisis you may be going through, but no matter how messy your mess is, got to keep moving. you got to. I saw this sign the other day. You ever seen one of these signs? And I thought to myself, how applicable to us as Christians. No matter what you're going through, even if it's self-inflicted, because we do that to ourselves, don't we? We create our own messes. You can't stop. Keep going. Keep moving. There is still a God and he still has a plan. On our worst day, let's try to remember that something bigger is at stake here. I think it's easy when we have problems or difficulties or whatever, it's easy to look at ourselves and completely focus on ourselves. That's only natural, right? I mean, I'm the one going through this. But remember, there's more to life than just my issues. As difficult as it may be, we have to look at the bigger picture here. There's more at stake There's more involved. The way we handle adversity can be a strong tool for ministry, right? Because we can say when everything's going well, praise God, hallelujah, Jesus. And we can post on Facebook, God is a God of blessings. He's taking care of me. He loves me. and, And he has restored my soul. All those great things. We talk about how wonderful God is when life is wonderful. But how about when life isn't wonderful? Do you still have the same feelings towards God? Can you still rejoice when you're in the middle of a mess? Because that's when people are paying attention. People are looking at your life, and you may be the only Bible they ever read. You may be the only sermon they ever hear. And they're looking at you when your life is in a mess, when it's in a tailspin maybe. And they're saying, okay, how much does this guy or this gal really love God? How invested is he? Think of the impact for the kingdom when people see a suffering servant who is still grateful to serve. I had coaches that used to tell me, play till the whistle blows. Meaning you keep running, you keep blocking, you keep tackling until the referee blows that whistle. Sometimes you have to play hurt. It's not ideal, but sometimes you have to do that. Just don't quit. Don't quit. Play till the whistle blows. Keep breathing, keep moving, 
and keep living. I want you to notice what is written in verse 5 through verse 8 of Acts 8. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip, and as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed, so there was much rejoicing in that city. How devastating the death of Stephen must have been to Philip. I mean, Stephen was Philip's friend. Philip must have been thinking, I can be next. But if you just read verse 5 out of context, something that I always caution you not to do, but if you just read verse 5 out of context, you would have no idea that Philip was reeling from the loss of Stephen or that the church was under any kind of fire. But the fact that he went to Samaria and proclaimed Christ to them, the fact that the crowds were responsive, the fact that many had been healed and that there was great rejoicing, that should speak volumes to those of us who are in the middle of a mess. Philip kept living. There was still work to do. There was still a mission ahead of him. We can't turn away from God. We can't abandon the church. We can't run from our responsibilities. And as difficult as it may be, as hard as it may be, we've got to get up and keep putting one foot in front of the other. When you wake up in the morning after your worst day, cry. And when you dry your tears, pull out your Bible. Pray. The Sunday after your worst day, go to church. What I see all too often is people who are in the middle of a mess, they turn away from God and the church when they need them the most. Cry. Read your Bible. Pray. Go to church. Keep putting one foot in front of the other. Yes, it's extremely difficult. When the worst day of your life hits, the pain may be unbearable and the hurt may never fully go away. But if you open your Bible... If you open your heart to God, if you keep moving forward, that smile, it'll take a little while to return. It's going to take a while for that that belly to shake from laughter. It's going to take a little while. But you can't turn the world off. You can't turn off your faith. You can't abandon God. You can't abandon the church. This is when you need those things the most. Exercise your faith. And I think you'll find hope at the end of the process. Philip responded to the worst day of his life with obedience. Did you notice that? While in Samaria, he did what Stephen had done. Things that marked the ministry of Jesus. Demons fled, people were healed, the gospel was preached, and the end result was, and I quote, great joy in that city. And that great joy never would have happened if Philip had just bowed out of service and said, I'm done, I can't take this anymore. This life is going somewhere, folks. Even in the middle of a mess, this life is going somewhere. Don't give up. Don't quit. Keep breathing. Keep moving. Keep living. What will you do on the worst day of your life? Well, let's go back to our cancer patient we talked about in the beginning. The one who had 99 plus tumors. 45 days to live. You know what James did? He gave up. He gave up on relying on himself. He gave up on trusting his fear. And he made the decision to trust God no matter what. No matter the result. As he put it, I was in a win-win situation. 
He decided to use cancer and letting, instead of letting cancer use him. He used his illness to draw closer to God, and that's when everything changed. He faced this grueling series of treatments, chemo treatments that, that included nine bags the first week. The treatments brought about extreme exhaustion and sickness. There was also the lumbar punctures where chemo was inserted directly into the spine to keep the cancer from spreading to his brain. One round of treatment equaled five days of being hooked up to a backpack of chemo bags. James would wear that backpack 24 hours a day, five days at a time. He would repeat this cycle five more times. I mean, can you imagine that? Can you imagine not only the physical toll, but the mental toll that all of this would take on a person? Turns out that there would be a whole lot of worse days in his life. How do you keep breathing? How do you keep moving? How do you keep living in the middle of such a mess? Let's ask him. James, would you stand up? Love you, James. James and Terry are a part of our body here. Obviously, he survived the 45-day death sentence. That's been, what, six years almost now, cancer-free. In fact, if you look at the scans, I think we have them. This is the before and this is the after and just a few months after the chemo treatment. In fact, after just the first few weeks, it wasn't showing up in the bones. His last chemo treatment was August 23rd, 2013. On October the 1st of that same year, another scan was done, and it was completely clear. 99 plus tumors, completely gone. And of course, like I said, James and Terry are a part of our body here. And they use their story as a ministry. Leaving out tomorrow to do just that for a week. They do it to anyone who asks them to come and to share how to get through a mess. How to cling to God in the middle of a mess. And as they will tell you. You don't do it without continuing to breathe, continuing to move, and continuing to live. Just don't quit. Don't quit. I hope that James is an inspiration to all of us. I hope that many others that are, that are here right here this morning living in a mess, dealing with the unthinkable, I hope that you derive strength from that. And I hope you derive strength from this church family and you will let us help you pray for you, support you, and love you as we seek to help you through it. And I hope that you will remember that life is about something greater. And as difficult as it may be to see it, we're in a win-win situation here. Cling to God. Keep breathing. Keep moving. Keep living. And if we can pray for you, come now as we stand and as we sing.